Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. You've probably heard the phrase, um, you are what you eat, right? And I, so right now, a lot of us are turkey, basically. Uh, I looked it up, and it comes from a, a French lawyer from the early 1800s. Uh, the exact phrase that he says is, uh, tell me what you are, tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. Um, and I think that's kind of good and, and good to keep in mind. And we say that when we want to say, like, hey, um, what you eat forms your body, your, your, your shape. You need to be careful about what you eat because that's what you're going to look like, that kind of thing. I remember doing a diet years ago, and it said that uh, you should avoid potatoes because if you eat potatoes, you're going to look like a potato. Um, and, I, and I didn't want that, you know. I don't want to be, like, round and lumpy with eyes all over me, you know. Like, I was like, that sounds like a, a, a bad idea. So we get the idea that you are what you eat. We understand that. Uh, but let me take that another level because I think there's more to it. I maybe another way to say this is you are what you consume. So what, yes, food, what you put in your body will eventually dictate the shape of your body. I, we understand that. And, and, and no amount of exercise can necessarily fix that. They say you can't outrun your fork. And there's something to that, uh, that, that, that what you consume will shape you. But it's not just food that we're talking about. You are what you consume. The things you allow in, across your eyeballs, and into your mind, into your heart, into your mouth, um, into your body, the things that you allow in eventually shape um, how you think and act and believe and move. And you end up becoming like those things that you consume. Uh, a negative example would, would be uh, pornography. So we... We like to do this game in this, in this country where we pretend pornography is harmless fun and, you know, consenting adults and, and recreation, entertainment, something like that. Um, when in reality, we, there's enough studies now, and this isn't just religious talk, this is just scientific talk out there. There's enough studies that we know that the constant consumption of this has a lot of downstream bad effects for people. Um, if I was to put it in religious terms, I would say you are taking people who have a soul and you are treating them like body parts to be enjoyed and commodified and just enjoyed for your satisfaction rather than the, the, the full purpose of a person. And, and over time, the constant use of that, the constant consumption of it, changes the way we think and look at men and women and, and causes all sorts of problems down the road um, because of that. So you are what you consume. Maybe a less harmful example is, um, have you ever met anybody who's an engineer? Right? Maybe you are an engineer. Anytime someone introduces me as an engineer, I always wish it was for trains and that they had one of those hats, but it's never for trains and they never have one of those hats. They're always doing something else, which is always a disappointment. Nonetheless, um, it, it, when, when someone's an engineer, um, and you'll hear them say this, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, I, the, the, you'll, you'll be doing something, you know, something around the house, working with a knife, cutting food or something. And they're like, well, I think like an engineer, so I think you should. And they, they've got some different idea about the way that thing should have been constructed or what we should be doing. And they'll say, I can't help it. I was trained to be an engineer. And, and that's the reality. They have, if, if I'm going to stretch the analogy a little bit, they have consumed engineering for years professionally. They've consumed engineering textbooks, and what comes out at the other end of that is they are an engineer, and they can't show up in life in any other way than but to be an engineer because they have become engineering personified because they've been in it so much. You see this for all sorts of 
backgrounds and professions. You know, someone's a lawyer and they, they've been trained to be a lawyer. They can't not be a lawyer. So they see like a litigation risk in everything, you know, in, in the daycare, in the, in, in the street signs and the, all the things. Everything is a problem because they've been trained to see the world that way. They have, they have consumed legal textbooks and, what, and, they, and they have been, become formed into the shape of a lawyer. You are what you consume. Let me take that maybe even another layer down. You are what you think about. You are what you think about. What, what goes in front of your mind day to day, hour after hour, what, what you obsess over in your head, um, it starts to shape who you, who you become. Um, th- those thoughts matter, and they form something very deep in, inside of you. Um, they say that men think about sex 19 times a day. That's a lot, right? 19 times a day. And what happens over time is it becomes an obsession, and they're, they're willing to go anywhere to get that because it's something they think about all the time. They become this thing all about it, willing to violate almost any moral code in order to achieve it and, and to have it because it's something that's been going across their mind over and over. They've become shaped by it. You see this with people who become obsessed with money. They, they think about money all the time, how to make money, where to get it, where it's coming from, how, how to get a hold of more of it, what could be done with it when they have it. And they're they're following the financial gurus and they're reading the stuff and they're trying to learn all of the things and, and trying to learn all the strategies for money management and all the wealth tips and they're listening to the podcast and all that. You may be that person, you may know that person, but you've been around people or maybe you are the people who are obsessed with money and in some ways they almost become it. They become, it, it shapes who they are. It, it drives uh, all these things in, in their heart. Now, uh, you've seen, you've seen, um, You've seen that that there are other things that shape us too when we when in our, that we allow to go in our minds. This is why I've been a big advocate for things like praying and reading scripture and journaling. When we do those things, we intentionally focus our minds on God, on the good, on on what is right and true and holy and real in the world. And when we constantly and continually will focus on those things, it shapes the way we think. Um, prayer actually can do something to change the the biochemistry in your brain. Like it's it's pretty powerful what can happen when we change the way we think. Um, when people do that negatively, when they, when they think negatively, over time they become bitter. You know this. Maybe you hung out with one of those people over the last couple of days. When people negatively over time become bitter, whereas people who think positively over time, they become generally more, uh, more, more happy, um, you know, upbeat sort of people. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman emperor, said it this way, our life is what our thoughts make it. Our life is what our thoughts make it. And, I, and, and that's another way of saying what I'm trying to tell you is uh, you are what you think about. Um, it, it, can't, it can't be any other way. You are what you think about. But I think that doesn't go quite far enough because we all think things. But underneath our thoughts, underneath what we eat, underneath what we consume, underneath what we think, there's another layer there. Um, Freud would call it the id uh, in ourself, uh, maybe the New Testament would refer to it as like the, the, uh, or the Apostle Paul might refer to it as the inner man. The New Testament uses a, a Greek word for heart, which is cardia, and it, it doesn't mean just the thing beating in your chest, but it actually means something deeper inside you, um, b- beneath your thoughts, this, this idea of desires. And so I guess I would say it this way, you are what you love. You are what you love. We are not merely... Um, thinking machines that happen to have some feelings. We are feeling, desiring 
organisms that think, and that maybe differentiates us from the animals is that we have the capacity to reason, but we are not primarily reasoners. We are primarily feelers. We have drives, obsessions. There's stuff that moves us, and then we think about it over time. And over time, and the reason we need to dig down into this is over time, you're not entirely shaped by what you think. You're going to be shaped by those drives and those desires. If you uh, are obsessed with money, you become money. If you, if you are obsessed with uh, a strong desire, uh, a strong sexual drive, um, that's gonna, a strong sex drive will drive a whole bunch of other things in your life. It'll make you eat differently and, and work out more and, and all these things you can attract a mate and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that's a very deep drive within us that, that dictates a lot of our behavior. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. We need to pay attention to what we're loving um, because those desires really matter. You see with, with uh, people who love and are obsessed with power and they have a desire for power, they often become kings and presidents and governors and, and people like that. And they, they sort of become what they are obsessed with. Um, I think when we talk about our, our, our desires, we're, we're really talking about um, our loves and desires. We're really talking about our, our vision. We're talking about what we behold, what, what, when we look off into the future and say, I want to become this, I'm, I'm driven towards that, I love this, that, 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 those, that, that has to do with vision. Um, it, and, and you see that in, inside of us. Um, what do we think we're doing on earth? What is our vision of the good life? What is life all about? What is my purpose? Um, what is my preferred future? When I have a vision of where I want to go, that ends up driving me forward. It drives my desires and obsessions and loves. Um, James K. A. Smith, uh, author, he, he writes about it this way. He says, to be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as flourishing. And we want that. We crave it. We desire it. This is why our most fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. We are oriented by our longings, directed by our desires. We are lovers, all of us, and we are what we love. Or maybe if I could take it one more layer and say it this way, you are what you worship. You are what you worship. Now, to worship something is not to sing a song to it. That could be part of it. But to worship something is to ascribe worth to something, to hold something up and say, this is worthy, this is goodness, this is greatness, this is what I aspire to, this is what I want to become, this is, this is everything, this is the, the ultimate. Um, to worship something is to orient your life all, all around it. And you see this all over our culture, don't you? I mean, we're worshipers, not just on a Sunday morning with a song, or in our car listening to a worship song or something like that, or, 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 or any of that kind of stuff. We are worshipers in all aspects of society. Um, you saw it yesterday. Did you see 100-plus thousand people flood the field in Michigan when, when the Wolverines beat Ohio State? Did you see uh, the, the, that's 100,000 people? Now, they're not singing a song and raising their hands. Maybe there was singing. I mean, and there might have been hand raising, and there was screaming, and then there, there was adoration and adulation, and all you know the vibe and the spirit and moves, and people are all doing this thing together. What what is that? It's worship, and it's a big worshiping community. Now, I'm, I was born in Ann Arbor, so I feel a little love toward, towards myself. Go blue, that's fine. 
And maybe you don't relate to that, but if I played Enter Sandman, a bunch of y'all would start jumping up and down right now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You worship too. It's just a different God, right? There's, there's that thing that, that, we, that, we, that we have um, where we, we will worship ourselves. We will worship our car. We will worship a, a, a woman or a man. We will worship children. We will worship money. Like we are worshipers. It's deep inside of us. And, and, and you see it all the time. You become like whatever you hold up as most valuable. So if you worship your career, you will become like it and it will dominate you. If you worship a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, you end up becoming like them over time. And no human can really bear all of our worship. That doesn't really work. It goes badly for them and it goes badly for us when we worship a person. All of that to say, in our Advent series that we're starting today, I want to talk about um, the presence of God in the world and, and how we worship Him during this season. And this is a season where it's very easy for our desires and our, our loves to get disordered in the world because the, this is the season when advertising and, and culture brings us a lot of shiny plastic objects and says, this is the stuff, and this is what you should worship, and this is the greatest thing, and this is where you should spend your time, money, energy, pour it all into this. And it's all a distraction from, from the true reason for this season that we're in. Um, I, I believe as followers of Jesus, we are to orient our lives towards him and to worship him fully. And, and as worshipers of Jesus, our goal is to become like him, uh, that, that we would be wrapped up in him, to, that, that our mission on earth is not just to make money. Our mission on earth is not just to have children or, or to have a great career. Our mission on earth is not just to be happy or create great art or things like that. I'm, I'm a fan of those things. All of that is fine. But underneath all of that, for followers of Jesus, our, our mission is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and invite other people along with us to, to join us in worshiping him. So I want to look at a scripture. This is not the normal scripture you might look at for Christmas or Christmas season, but it happens right around the birth of Jesus. And I want to look at a scripture about someone who is a worshiper and what he did because uh, th- this guy was, was, was in it. He was all in, full in on this Jesus thing even before he knew who Jesus was. And, and I think there's something to learn from how he approached this. Luke chapter 2 the first couple of chapters of Luke and the first couple of chapters of Mark uh, of Matthew are where we get most of the stories that we will tell around Christmas and most of the narrative about Jesus' early days. And in Luke chapter 2, uh, his parents, Mary and Joseph, take, take Jesus to uh, the temple in, in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. And I want to read it to you because there's a guy that shows up on the scene there who is a worshiper and he is, he is about it. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, Luke is Greek, not Jewish. So one of the good things is when something very Jewish happens in the story that a Greek reader might not understand or like a Roman citizen might not understand... Luke will give us a little side comment and be like, this is because of this weird Jewish thing that they got going on that they're doing. And he kind of does that here. And he, and, he, and he mentions a couple things. He says, they're going up, and it says, according to the law of the Lord. When, when you see that phrase, we're talking about God's laws, which are, are 
primarily in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch is another name for it. These first five books of the Old Testament carry the laws of God. There's 612 or so laws that are written down, and they're laws about everything, about um, about how, hand, how to handle food and about what you should wear and how you should treat strangers and, and, and then your Ten Commandments and things like that. So there's all these laws, and the Jews would be very concerned about keeping those laws right and doing it well. Well, well there's a law for birth, and, and, the, uh, and there's some things that need to be done. And, and one of the things that it says in the law is that when your firstborn child it, it come, comes out, um, you will uh, go to the to the temple and offer a sacrifice because this child is to sort of be set apart as holy for the Lord. And so they, they would go to the, the, the temple and offer the sacrifice. And so it mentions that. So Mary and Joseph are doing because they're Jewish. So what we find out is they're Jewish and they're going to the temple to do this thing because Jesus was born. That's their firstborn child. They're going there to offer the sacrifice saying this child is set apart for God, that, that kind of idea. But one little detail that we kind of miss when we read this is it says they brought two pigeons or two turtle doves, and, um, and, and it says they brought that, and, and so we read that, and we go, oh, okay, they brought some animals to, as an animal sacrifice. Weird, but okay. But one detail we miss is that if you go back and read the original law about what they're supposed to be doing there in Leviticus chapter 12, you find out that when a woman is born, she has this, a woman gives birth, she has this period of seven days where she's unclean, and then a period of about six weeks or so of ceremonially unclean, and then at the end of that period, it's about 40 days or so, they take, them, they take the child to the temple. So there's this, re- it's almost like what we would think of medically like this rest and recovery period after giving birth. So there's this period, and they go to the temple, what they are supposed to bring as an offering for this firstborn child is a lamb and a pigeon or a dove. Um, and Joseph and Mary don't do that. The reason they don't bring a lamb is because they're poor. They can't afford that. And so the law made a provision that if you can't afford it, you can just bring two pigeons or two doves or something like that. And so it's a little detail that, that we miss, but the truth is Joseph and Mary are Jewish and they don't have a lot of money. They're, they're, not, they're not people of wealth and means. And this is a big deal because Jesus later is going to come along and, and when he's teaching, he's going to have a concern for the poor and a heart for the poor. And he's going to speak about loving and, and serving the poor and, 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 and helping them. And that's not theoretical for Jesus. That's his experience. That's the way he grew up. That's the family he grew up in. And so I just want to say that up front that like, if you don't have money, and you don't have a lot of money in the way we measure wealth in America, um, man, Jesus is for you and is on your side. And, and that's actually the background he comes from, too. The, the God of the universe chooses to show up in the world in the form of a, of a poor kid from a small, insignificant little town. And, and, and um, so that's why as a church especially during Advent, we want to we be about it. We're, we're going to do a project in December. We're going to do a special offering. I'll tell you much more about it next week and the week after. But it is aimed at people who are struggling with me- medical debt um, and, and particularly for those who are among some of the poorest in our region who are struggling with medical debt. And we, there's a project we're going to be a part of in the next month where we're going to give to our Advent offering and actually pay off medical debt for a whole bunch of folks. And so there's a lot more to talk about that next week and the week after. Um, but, but we're doing that because we also want to identify and support and help those who are, who are struggling, um, as, as Jesus did. 
All right, so continuing on, this guy shows up in the story in, in Luke chapter 2 um, and sees jo- So Joseph and Mary just kind of walk into the, the temple and they bring their, their doves and, 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 and they bring this boy Jesus. And this guy shows up in the story, this guy named uh, Simeon. And I want you to hear what happens with him because it's kind of fun. Uh, all right, Luke 2, starting with verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, Simeon, old guy, waiting for, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel is what it says. This is a, a phrase that uh, there, were, there were people in that day that were waiting for the Messiah to come, the Savior to come. So the Israelites are living under the Roman rule. Before that, they'd been under Assyrian and Babylon and all these other groups. And so the Israelites sort of feel like we don't have our own land. We don't have our own people. There's no peace here. We're always under someone else's boot. We're always oppressed, that kind of thing. And so they're waiting for, in their words, a Messiah, a Savior who would come along and would liberate them and not only be the Savior of Israel, but would actually be the Savior of the whole world. So there are people who are like, looking for the signs of the times and trying to figure out when is the Messiah coming? When is the Savior coming? When is this one who's going to come bring us peace? While they're under oppression, they're looking for this. And Simeon is spending his life looking for him, and he's all about it. And the Spirit of God tells Simeon, go to the temple. This is where you're going to see it. And it says you're going to, he, he's looking for the Lord's Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the Greek version of Messiah, the Savior sent to the world. So, um, Simeon is there, and he's looking uh, all over the place for trying to find this, this Savior. Um, and then look at what happens, verse 27. And he came into this, in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. It's a bit of a weird situation, right? Joseph and Mary come in, and I don't know how you are, but you know firstborn, first-time parents. You know, it's not... You're not necessarily just going to hand your baby off to an old man stranger who runs up to you and is like, let me hold your baby. You know, you're like, okay, whoa, like you're going to, I'm going to need you to sanitize a little bit. You're going to need to before you're going to, you know, right? And, but, but they do. They're walking through and he's like, your baby. You know, can you imagine this old guy who's been obsessed with this thing? Oh, you know, he's freaking out. Let me hold your baby. So they run up and they're like, okay. And so he, Simeon takes Jesus in his arms, little baby Jesus. He takes Jesus in his arms, and, and basically he says, oh, this is it. Like, I've waited my whole life to see this. And, and he effectively says, I can die now. Like, this is, this is, is the center of life. This is, this is everything. I've, I've, I've been longing for this. And he, and he holds, um, and he holds Jesus um, and, and, and this is the one. And, and I don't know how this is going to work, but he is going to save all of us, the Gentiles, the Jews. This is the child that is going to change the course of history. I, I'm not sure of the details, but I, but I believe it's true. And, and he offers up um, uh, this, 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 these words, and, and this must have been so weird for him 
to, to finally see the one he's been waiting for all his life. Must have been so weird for his parents to have a stranger come up and do this to them. Um, and, and it says, actually, we get a little clue. It says they marveled at what was said about him. They were like, man, I mean, a lot of parents like their kid, right? And they're like, yeah, we think he's cute too. But this is beyond that. This isn't just he's a cute baby. This is he's going to change the world. It's, it's, it's powerful. So for the next few weeks, I'd like us to kind of enter into this story of Christmas. Um, and there's a word I want to key in on here today. Um, in, 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 because it, it's very easy for us in the most materialist time of the year, which would make not as fun of a Christmas song if we changed it to that, but that's what it is, right? In the most, in, in, the, in the season of the year when culture shouts the loudest to get stuff and be about stuff and, and to try to buy a feeling, to try to buy connection and the romance and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, in, in a time of year when culture is shouting that, I want us to... Um, Go, go a different route and to think about it differently, maybe do some different things. Simeon um, praised God in here, and the word for praise that it uses is the word eulogeo, which is where we get our word eulogy, which we think of as a speech when someone's dying, but it actually means to bless. And this is what Simeon does. He blesses them with this, this eulogy, these words. Um, and it's not for, for a death, it's for a new life. There's a, there's a blessing there. There is a, a praise that comes from Simeon, um, he, he's a worshiper, and this is what he's worshiping. And I want us to think about that because I walked you through the ways that we actually are worshipers too. And I want us in this season to focus on our, how we worship and who we are worshiping. So let me just ask you two questions, and then we'll wrap up with this. Number one, what or who are you worshiping? What or who are you worshiping? Simeon's whole life was preparing for that moment, that, that opportunity to worship. He's trying to read the signs um, because this is what he loved. This is the object of his worship, finding the Savior. And my question is, who do you love? Who do you love? What are you worshiping? I can't answer that for everybody. I know it's not something we think about a lot. If I say, who do you love, you might think, my boyfriend, my, my wife, my kids, my grandma. Like there, there's somebody there that you might insert, oh, I love these people. Um, but I want you to notice it. I want you to notice where your loves are uh, ordered in, in, in society and in the world. Um, notice where your heart is drawn. What do you, maybe another way to say it is, what do you daydream about? What are you obsessed with? And in the midst of all that, is there room for, for the Lord? Do you worship him, or is all your worship focused on other things, other people? Uh, Christmas should be the most obvious Jesus-focused thing. I mean, it's literally in the title, Christ Mass, right? We should, you ever put those together? That's what, okay, so the Christ Mass, the celebration of Christ being born, that should be like screaming, sort of blindingly obvious, and we have settled for something about North Pole and a guy in a red suit, and eight tiny reindeer, and all, like we've settled for this other like weird sort of fake news story um, that kind of runs counter to the whole thing, and is this other, you know, subversive, like, oh, here's this other thing that this is all about, and we've sort of settled for that, which, which has a very Madison Avenue sort of vibe to it of like, okay, we're, we're sold this, um, and, and, and I'm not against all of that, it's, 
it's fun-ish. I like some of the songs, and, um, but that ain't it. Just ain't it. This is the time of year to lean into the real truth of the Christ Mass, the real truth that God showed up for us, that there's His presence in the world, not gifts, but His, His appearance, Him being with us. This is a big, big deal, and this is the time of year to lean into that real truth. God has showed up to earth, and if we worship Him fully and put Him first, it can reorder and reprioritize all our other loves. So I just ask that question in your own heart. Who or what are you worshiping today? And then secondly, the question is, what can you do to worship Jesus fully during this Advent season? Our church exists to connect people to God, to each other, and to change the world, right? So we want to help you find God, find, find your, your people, and change the world. Another way of saying that, that really all churches that are followers of Jesus, this is what we should be about. We are disciples who try to make disciples, um, we're going to be disciples of Jesus, become an apprentice of Jesus, and we want other people to be apprentices of Jesus too. And everyone outside of this room, we're, we're inviting them in to come, to come be apprentices of Jesus also. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Um, that, that's it. And so what we do as a church when we think about as staff and elders, when we structure things of, oh, let's do this, let's gather here, we are trying to create opportunities for you to either connect to God, connect to other people who are connecting to God, or change the world. We look for opportunities. That's kind of the grid that we filter things through. And so we're going to create opportunities for you during this Advent season. Like, like Simeon, we need to orient our lives towards it and be about it if we're going to worship fully this, this season. So a couple, let me just give you two ideas. Number one, um, there's an Advent prayer guide that we've, that we've put out that you can start reading, really should start today, the first Sunday in this sort of Advent season, um, this prayer guide. And there's a prayer, different prayers you can go through and pray a different one each day as you, as you focus in. Maybe, maybe read Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Luke's chapter 1 and 2, and kind of read through some of the things that happened around Christmas. Read those each, a little bit of that each day and, and, and do the Advent prayer guide. In addition to that, this Wednesday night, this Wednesday, we're going to release to you, um, uh, 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 starting December 1st, we'll, ha- we'll have this uh, Advent, um, I-, I don't know the right word for it, practices, challenge, um, strategies. It's, it's, it, it's a different thing that you can do each day to go along in the season that will help you focus on what this is about. Some of them are around generosity. Some of them are maybe read this thing. Some of them might be watch this thing. Some of them might be like go to the store and do this thing. Like there's some different things in there. In the, in, in, that we're going to put out um, digitally this Wednesday, and then in person we will distribute it this Wednesday at the second thing I'm going to tell you about. This Wednesday night at our property here at 2810 West Cary Street, just right there, um, we are going to have a, 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 an Advent worship night uh, to kick off the season. Um, we are going to come together, we're going to sing some songs together, have some hot chocolate, something like that, and uh, and we're going to pray together, and we're going we're gonna to make the season about what the season's really about. And it's just, it's going to be short. It'll be this coming Wednesday night from 7 to 8 o'clock, and you are all invited to be there, to sing, to join with others. We're going to light some candles um, and, and, and just have, have a, a holy night to kick off December. And I think that's going to be an awesome thing. And we will also have uh, hard copies there of some of the other Advent um, calendar challenges that we have for you uh, for, for the month of, of December. So that's going to be a great opportunity. There are, there are 
there are chances here for you to make this season about Jesus. The table is set, but I can't make anybody pick up a fork. Like, you, you have to decide, okay, I want this, and I'm going to go after it, and let me invite you to do it, um, to, be, to do your part and be intentional with your time. Um, all of this is about reordering our loves and, and, and being honest with what we worship, because we're all worshiping, and let's get real about it. In fact, um, if you've never read David Foster Wallace's speech that he gave to Kenyon College in 2005, um, I've quoted pieces of it up here before, but the whole speech is worth reading. Um, it's called This is Water. You can look that up. Um, and he, gives, he gave a, grad, a speech to a graduating class at Kenyon College. And um, I want to read you just this one piece about worship. And as I read this, I want you to know David Foster Wallace is either like he's an atheist or an agnostic. He's not a religious guy, okay? But listen to what he says about worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. We are all worshipers, and it matters. It matters what we worship and and how we worship. And I just want to challenge you today and in this season to decide that you're going to worship differently than the world worships. And you're going to notice the things and you're going to look at your heart and go, Where, what am I loving? And you're going to attend to that and, and see it and, and orient it towards the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this community of worshipers. We are imperfect and we mess up and we don't often get it right. But we are on this journey and we are, we are trying to incline our hearts towards you and, and do what is right. God, may we take the spirit of Simeon who, who was seeking you, who was just with all his heart was trying to find you and honor you. May we take that and, and be the people who do that too uh, in this season. God, there's so many distractions coming up for us. There's so much um, music and, and um, 
tinsel and, and, and all of the things, but God, we, we just want to keep it about what it's about, that it's the Christ Mass that we celebrate this season. So God, we look forward to that, our gathering on Christmas Eve. We, we look forward to the chance to sing together the ancient songs. Um, help us, Lord, to, um, to, to keep our priorities right and, and to reorder our loves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.